I want to welcome you today to our fourth installment in our summer series of sermons we are calling Misfits. And this name is more than just the title of our series. It is literally what we are called to be and what I believe over this, this season as we are focused in the book of 1 Peter together, it is what we are becoming. We are becoming misfits. You know, it's been my prayer for you all summer long that as you hear God's word, and even more significantly than that, you apply God's word, that you would become the kind of person, I would be kind, become the kind of person who doesn't fit into the ways and the common customs of those around us, but we would be those who live different because we are different, because we are misfits. And I pray you even begin to see your life and you begin to see the way you treat people and you begin to see everything around you start to change as you live out God's desire, his intention for you to be a misfit. For those of you that may be new with us today, or it's your first time to watch us at church online in this series, or catch this video on YouTube, or listen to the podcast, welcome. My name is Michael. I am so glad you are here. What we are doing in this collection of sermons that we are calling Misfits is we are walking through the New Testament book known as 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a letter written by one of the great leaders in the early church, Peter. And he wrote it to Christians who were scattered abroad in some places where there weren't very many Christians. And he's giving them instruction on how to live as misfits. And so today I want to jump right into our text on today as we just continue moving through the writing that is 1 Peter. We find ourselves on today in 1 Peter chapter 2. And the portion of scripture we are going to digest together is going to begin in verse 11 of chapter 2, and we're going to move all the way to verse 17. I want to read it, and then today I want to help bring to light and bring to clarity some of what Peter is addressing here. And then I really want to hammer in on what is the binding statement that he makes in this writing that I'm going to read to you here in just a moment. Because it's not just his binding statement to these few verses that we're going to read today. It's literally his premise from the beginning, and it's the common thread that's going to weave our way through the entire book that is 1 Peter. And so we're going to focus in a little bit on that today, and uh, I believe become people who are challenged to be those who are doing good. Doing good. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 11, here's the way the scripture reads. He says, Dear friends, I urge you, as strangers and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that war against you. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that in case, in a case where they were to speak against you as those who do what is evil, they will, by observing your good works, glorify God on the day of visitation. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. As God's slaves live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a way to conceal evil. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Wherever you are today and however you may be listening to this, come on, whether you're in a room full of people or you're sitting in your, your kitchen by yourself, you're maybe watching this in the car, maybe some of you are heading out of town, you are on a trip, but you said, I'm going to turn into church online. I want to get this word on the inside of me. Would you just say this real loud and real clear? Say, I am a misfit. Come on, say this again. Say, I am a misfit. Now, one time, real quick, if you can, if you're in a coffee shop, don't make nobody have a heart attack. But, uh, but if you can shout this, shout this one time wherever you are. Say, I am a misfit. It is important that I remind you as to who you are. It is important that you remind yourself as to who you are because this is literally the very first thing Peter does, even though he's halfway through chapter 2 as we are in taking in his letter. He's already said a bunch of stuff as we have covered in part 1, part 2, and part 3. But he gets here and he's 
beginning again, giving them more instruction, and he reminds them of who they are. He starts his letter this way, and again here and on through this letter, he's going to continue to remind them of something that they and really us may not be used to. The fact that this world that we occupy, this time and space and place that we live in is not our home. The amount of people who profess to believe in Jesus, who profess to be Christians, who believe that, that, that when they die, they spend eternity with the Lord. It boggles my mind how many of those people who profess that act like all these things that we hold on to on this side of eternity are the only things that matter. They act like this world is their home. But Peter is trying to wake us up right off the jump. And he calls us again, uh, strangers and temporary residents, as we've been calling it, misfits. He reminds us, listen, this is not your permanent residence. This is not where you're always going to be. So don't act like this is where you always going to be. Don't act like what happens this week is the only thing that matters because this week is just a blip in eternity. Don't act like the things that you acquire and the stuff that you have and the, the pleasures of this life are the only things that matter because they're not. This is not your home. And so he reminds us all of that as he starts because being a misfit means that we don't live like everyone else does. Being a temporary resident of this place, of this planet, means that we don't see all these things the way everyone else sees them. And after he re-reminds us all of who we are, he calls us to something. He calls us to live in a way that's honorable among people who don't know God. What a great challenge. What a high calling, honestly. For you, for I, for his original readers and everyone in between to live in such a way that our lives are honorable in the eyes of people who do not know God, people who do not believe like we believe. It really makes me sad today to think about the reputation of Christians and Christianity in general. Because even though I am a Christian, <laughs> I am keenly aware and recognize that Christians and Christianity is not seen in a favorable light among many, many people, particularly in our country. I mean, all you have to do is turn on whatever your favorite uh, streaming service is, and you will find, while they come from very different camps and sectors of the Christian uh, expression, you will find these shameful pieces, sometimes called documentaries, sometimes called podcasts, sometimes called just articles, continuing to heap mess on top of mess on this thing that is Christianity. Whether it's Amazon's most watched feature right now, Shiny Happy People. Whether it's the Hillsong documentary on Hulu. Whether it's podcasts like The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Whether it's articles about leaders in the Christian faith. Whether it's uh, movies created upon sexual abuse that has gone on in the Catholic Church to children for way too long. Whether it's whatever it might be you will find these unbecoming pictures of this thing. And while they might only be highlighting a single church or a particular denomination, people who do not know Jesus don't see it that way. They see it as this is the way all Christians are. This is the way people, people of faith, they're money hungry. People of faith, they don't do what they say they're going to do. People of faith, they're, they're, they're not like that. They appear one way, but behind closed doors, they're another. And I think this reality would break the heart 
of Peter. Because Peter is trying to make it so clear to his readers, trying to make it so clear to you and me that we are to live in a way that is honorable among people who don't know God. See, some people take great offense to all these pieces that are out there. They take great offense to, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention being the, the center of attention for the New York Times for the last couple of weeks. They take great offense to these things, and to be quite honest, I don't. I think a lot of the indictment that has put, been put on Christianity is certainly not true of all Christians. It's certainly not true of all churches. It's certainly not true of all of Christianity. But some of it's actually warranted. See, sometimes the problem is that many people will put God first in their bio, but not live like God matters at all to them. They will use their platform, whatever it is. Maybe you don't have the influence of some of these that I've mentioned, but you got God first in your bio, but yet you use your voice and you use your space and you use your opportunities to do everything but point people to God. You use it to bash other people. You use it to tear down people who may have an ideology different from you. And Peter would say, what are you doing? You're a misfit. This ain't your home. This ain't where you live. This is not where you're, like, get a perspective of who you are and where you're going. Live honorable among people who don't know God. To take it a step further, what Peter is even saying here, if you would read it again, and really lean into the truth of the words that he's saying, is he's saying the way we live should show people who don't know God that there is a God. The way that you live, the way that I live, the way that we as the capital C church live should be something that shows people who do not know God that there is a God and he sees them and he knows them and he cares about them. We're getting ready here in a couple of weeks to, as a part of I Love Summer, do one of our neighborhood cleanups. This is not something that is the first time we've done this. In fact, we did uh, a few neighborhood cleanups last summer as a part of I Love Summer. For those of you that are unfamiliar with what we do with the neighborhood cleanups, is we literally go to the neighborhoods right around us and we target houses that the outside of their house clearly needs some attention. Now we ain't out here trying to like rebuild houses. This is not extreme makeover, believing edition. You know what I'm saying? Like this is, we just go do yard work, okay? But there are many times where you'll find grass that is waist high and you will find shrubs that have not been cut back in years and you will find sticks and leaves and over and it becomes an eyesore for people on the street. And I remember one of the times that we did this last year, we targeted a house literally just a couple of blocks, two, maybe three blocks from our physical location where we're located on Summer Avenue. And we tried to reach out to the, to the people that live there and couldn't get contact, but we ended up going on the Saturday morning, we were going out to do it, and, and actually got the people that lived in there to answer the door, and they gave us the okay to work on their yard. What you need to understand is that I think we were doing this in the month of July, and it was clear that this yard had not been touched the entire year. <laughs> Y'all know stuff be growing here. With our humidity and our heat, stuff be growing. All, all, the, all the, the weeds and stuff in the yard, you know, they were approaching, you know, knee to waist height, you know. Uh, sticks everywhere, bushes that you couldn't even see the house. Shrubs had been overgrown, you know, dead branches, all, all this stuff. Packed in leaves because there were trees all over the place. So the leaves had just caked in. So you'd have like, it was almost like a leaf lasagna, you know, a layer of leaves. And then you find some trash and then more leaves. It was just a mess. And one of these days, this became our target house that we were going to work on. And then as we got that under control, we were going to help some other houses that were around there that might need a little assistance, you know, for whatever reason. Maybe somebody had been out of town. Maybe somebody got sick and just didn't have the ability to cut their grass. We just want to show up and be a blessing. And so we get out there and we probably had, I don't know, I don't know, 15 people or so working on this one yard, okay? Uh, this ain't like 18 acres, like one yard, like just a normal lot size yard. And as we are working on it, we start to see like neighbors come out and sit on their front porch and just be watching us work. In fact, one of our, one of our team members, uh, as we were starting to make some progress and get stuff down, started to go to some of the houses around there and asking people, hey, is there anything you would like help with today? You know, we're here for good. We're here to serve. Like, if we can help, let us know. 
And uh, I remember somebody telling me they went to this one house and there were a group of people, they were just in the front yard hanging out, you know, enjoying some breakfast and whatever, just hanging out on a Saturday morning. And, uh, and uh, they, uh, they asked the volunteer with us, they said, hey, are you guys like a lawn service? They said, no, we're actually, you know, we're part of a church. We're a believing church right around the corner. They said, a church? My goodness. They said, we've been calling, talking, complaining, asking them for, for, uh, for months to do something about their yard. It looks so terrible. And they said, there must be a God <laughs> if this yard going to get cleaned up as bad as it was. And I know that they were just sort of joking, you know, the whole church thing. But that, when that story got told to me, it struck something in me. That seeing 15, 18, 20 people out in a yellow vests so we don't get hit, <laughs> cleaning up somebody's yard who's been neglected, actually sparked something on the inside of people. They say, man, there must be a God. Whether it was a joke from them or something true in them, Something sparked, and I think that's what Peter is getting to. When Peter says you're to live in such a way among people who don't believe God, it's such an honorable way that they would see God in you. They would see God in me. They would see God in what we do. That the tangible work that we do should open people's eyes to God. What I think he's getting at is this, and I would love for you to write this down in your notes today, that our living should help people believe God, not hinder people from believing God. That the way you live, the way I live, should help people believe God. That the way you live, the way I live, should not be the thing that hinders people. We should not be another roadblock in people's journey toward God. They shouldn't be able to talk about, well, I saw this documentary and I see the way you live and I listen to the way you talk and I watch the way you treat your kids and I see the way you care about your neighbors and I don't want nothing to do with God because of what I see in you. Woo! Nobody would ever tell that to you more than likely. But what if that's their reasoning for not wanting to trust God? Because of what they see in you. Because of what they see in me. Our living should help people believe God, not hinder people from believing God. And this is our living on every level, in every facet you could think of. See, Peter in these verses approaches a subject matter that for many of us today feels off limits unless it's online. Peter gets political in these verses. There is this clear political, governmental, and understanding of authority charge that Peter gives from these verses. He talks about the emperor, and the governors. Why? Because Peter is a Jewish man living in Rome at the time. He's living in Rome doing ministry there because God has called him there. And he's sending this letter primarily to Christians who have found themselves in what we would know as modern day Turkey, what some people may refer to more broadly as sort of the Asia Minor area. But Peter knows that this letter is going to find its way into Israel, to Galilee, if you will, and. Uh, and that people all along the way are going to read this and take this to heart. In all of these spaces are under the authority of Rome. Rome is the superpower of the day. Rome has control of the then known world. So Peter is finding himself in the city that is the most powerful city in the world to them at the time. And he tells them some striking things. Some things that would sound countercultural, very misfit-like to them then, but also sound very misfit-like to us now. You see, the way most people deal with leaders in a governmental space, in a political arena, uh, authorities, in a, is they first begin by picking their side, right? This is what we do. We pick sides. 
We, we, we pick the red side or the blue side, the Republican side or the Democratic side. We pick a side. We pick a side on an issue. We say, I'm with them. I'm against them. I am pro this. I am anti this. We pick a side. And once we pick a side, we find the leaders who are on the side that we pick and we say, okay, I'm going to hitch my wagon to them. And then what we do, rather than walk that thing out or learn more, discover whatever, what we actually do once we pick the side and now attach ourselves to a leader is we deem them as infallible in many cases and use all of our energy to attack people who oppose our side and our leader. This is what they call news today. This is what some people call conversation online. This is what some people call, I'm making a difference out here. No, 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 you're just spending all of your time criticizing an opposition. Criticizing people who think differently than you. I think if Peter were to find himself here and now today interacting with you and interacting with me, interacting with people who have opinions about political matters, opinions about governmental leaders, he would inform you that um, the way you're acting is anti-misfit. That the way many of us interact, the way many of us process and think and foster our disagreements with political leaders and with governmental authority is anti-misfit. Because Peter makes a very, very clear and very, very strong and incredibly potent and powerful declaration that I want you to write down as to how misfits deal with leadership in their lives. He would say that misfits honor leadership even when they oppose leadership. Really? I missed that end of verse. Let me show it to you. See, every piece of writing in the New Testament and the Old Testament was written by someone in a particular time. I told you that Peter is in Rome writing this to various Christians spread about, and he wrote it from Rome at a particular time. Peter was alive <laughs> in a particular time. And we know that Peter wrote this in the mid to late 60s AD. We don't know the exact date because he didn't like document that in the footnotes of this. But we know the general range, somewhere between 66, 67, 68, 69, 80. Somewhere in there is when Peter takes it upon himself to write this letter. Which means that as he's writing this letter, when he says emperor, there is somebody sitting on the throne that they can attach a name, an agenda, things they have done, things they're promising to do, to. Just like if I was writing a letter today to people scattered about throughout America, and I would say, if I were to say, honor the president, and if it was dated 2023, you would be able to connect that to President Joe Biden. If I were to say, you were to honor the king, and I would write in 2023 a letter to, to Christians spread about in, in England. There's an individual, King Charles, that they would think of. If I were to say, honor the leader and write it to Christians in Russia, honor the leader and write it to Christians in North Korea, there would be a figure that you would know. History would tell us that the emperor that Peter literally is thinking of as he writes emperor. The emperor that his original readers would have understood he is talking about when he is written this and they are receiving this instruction would have been one of two individuals. More than likely, it was the Roman emperor Nero. Now maybe you're unfamiliar with Nero and his work, but more than likely I bet you are very familiar with him. And if it was not Nero, it most certainly would have been Vespasian. One of these two individuals literally filled the role of emperor as Peter is writing this. Now for those of you who are unfamiliar, Nero very publicly, very 
historically documented, was a persecutor of Christians. Among his many uh, fallings short. Nero was crazy. So crazy that one of his wives got pregnant and he did not want her to get pregnant. And in a fit of rage one night, he kicked her in her belly so hard that it killed her and the baby. He was crazy. He felt threatened by Christians, so much so that it was Christians that he would find and have brought into the Roman Colosseum, have the Colosseum filled by patrons who would pay tickets to watch uh, wild animals literally tear apart Christians inside of the Colosseum. It was Nero who was so threatened by Christians that he actually burned down part of Rome under his leadership and blamed it on the Christians to try to get those who were not Christians to be anti-Christian. Nero was crazy. And as Peter says, honor the emperor, there is a good chance that the person in his mind was Nero. And if it wasn't Nero, it was Vespasian. And Vespasian, while he's a lot less famous than Nero, was maybe for Peter's time and the, the starting place of faith for many of these people more significant in a detrimental sense. See, Vespasian was one of the leading military officials for Nero while Nero was emperor. It was Vespasian who went into Israel and began to wipe out Jewish Christians in Galilee. It was Vespasian that put together the plan to take over and destroy Jerusalem. And while Vespasian was emperor when the destruction of Jerusalem happened, Vespasian wasn't the one who led it. It was his son. But Vespasian had set the whole thing up. And Peter is saying to these Christians scattered all about this, this territory under Roman rule who would have had clear negative thoughts, clear opposition to Roman leadership because it's Roman leadership that's killing my kind. It's Roman leadership that's pursuing us. It's Roman leadership that's trying to make our, our lives hard. He would say, honor him. Honor the emperor. Nero, yes. Peter, you talking about this page? Yes, honor the emperor. Why? Because Peter wants Christians to live in such a way that their pagan neighbors could have nothing negative to say against Christianity. You say that's crazy. I know this world ain't your home. You're foreigners. You're just passer throughs. You're misfits. That's why before he even begins to remind them of this almost crazy instruction. He says, don't forget your misfits. Don't forget this world is not your home. And some of us need to take this to heart when it concerns how we view political leaders, how we view authority in the workplace, how we view leaders in our city that we may disagree with. Because the common standard of the day is you call them everything but a child of God. And Peter would say, even when you oppose what they do, even when you oppose what they stand for, even when you oppose what they are all about, you honor the leader. Now there's this line in the middle of this text. It's verse 15 in the Bible of 1 Peter chapter 2. But this line that sort of works as the thread that holds all of this together this, this line that um, really serves as the, the thesis behind everything that Peter is writing in 1 Peter. He says this, he says, for it is God's will, this is what he said, that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. It is God's will for you. It's God's will for me that we silence, we shut the mouths of foolish people, people who don't know God. That's what he means by foolish people. Shut the mouths of people who don't know God by doing good. 
I don't know if you've ever stressed over doing God's will in your life, but I have. I, when I was in high school, even in college, even some of my first years of uh, being married and being in ministry and, and living life, like I spent a lot of time very, very worried as to whether or not I was doing God's will in this present moment. I mean, every decision I made is like, God, did you want me to wear the jean shirt today or should I wear something different? You know, God, God, did my haircut look right? God, were these the glasses you want? Like I I stressed over it because the tradition I was a part of almost uh, almost taught you to do that. And I was in one of those moments where I was processing God's will for my life in, in a significant area, in a significant way. And I came across a book that shaped me about as deeply and as profoundly as any book that is not the Bible ever has. It was written by a guy called Jerry Sitzer. And it's called The Will of God as a Way of Life. And what Jerry does in this writing is he takes the idea of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, and he sort of attaches it to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, which are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And he comes to this conclusion concerning God's will for our life. That God's will is to do what he said is good to do. To make it a priority in your life, wherever you may be and however you may be, that you will do what God said is good to do. The interesting thing is for most of us, people like me at least, who who stretch and fret and worry and think and pray and hope about God's will for our life is that we are often very, very concerned about details in our life, right? God, what city am I supposed to move to? God, do you want me to stay in Memphis or do you want me to move to Minneapolis? God, have you called me to Texas or am I a Tennessean for life? God, there's a job opportunity that just opened up in Washington. Have you called me to the Pacific Northwest or have you called me to South Beach? People wonder all the time about these types of things as God's will. And the conclusion that Jerry brings so eloquently and powerfully that has resonated in such a deep way as I look at the scriptures and look at what God has called you and me to as I wrestle with the realities of 1 Peter chapter 2, specifically verse 15, where he says, it's the will of God that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good, would be this, that God is a lot less concerned with where you live and more concerned with how you live wherever you live. What's God's will for your life? Maybe it has a lot less to do with whether you move into that subdivision or that one. Whether you live in this neighborhood or that one. And a lot more to do with whatever neighborhood you find yourself in. How you go about living there. God's will for your life has a lot less to do with what job you take and what job you turn down. And a lot more to do with whatever job you find yourself taking. You do that job well. You work there well. Whatever you do, you do is unto the Lord. That God's will for your life is about doing good. Can I tell you wherever you are, whether you're a student in high school, college, middle school, whether you're an adult, you're grown, you're retired, you've got kids, never had kids, never want kids, got kids, don't really want them, but you got like wherever you may find yourself. You want to know what God wants you to do? Good. You want to know what God wants you to do? He wants you to do good. You see, anyone can do good to those who do good to them. But misfits are those who do good regardless. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you say about me. It doesn't matter how you treat me. I will do good to you and by you and for you. Even though nobody else in this world may see it that way, I see it that way because I'm not of this world. In fact, the very Greek word used here that gets translated as do good is used by Peter a couple other times in his later chapters of 1 Peter. The only other place in the New Testament this Greek word is found is actually found by the gospel writer Luke as he is recording Jesus' words where Jesus says, what good is it if you do good only to those who do good to you? Because even pagans do that. 
This idea is hammered down in this word. When he's saying do good, he's not talking about you do good to your brother because you love your brother. You do good to your sister because you love your sister. You do good to your bestie because she's your bestie. And so I'm always going to do good by my bestie. Nothing wrong with that. But Jesus and Peter would say, look, even people that don't know God do that. You do good to people who hate you. You do people who stand for things that you don't stand for. You do good to authority that their authority and the way they use their authority, it offends you. You do good wherever. See, the operation of the misunderstood minority, the misfits is this. We do good. And can I tell you, when you and I start doing good, it flies in the face in such a unavoidable, undeniable way to people who don't know the God that we know. Because of the physical location of our facility, I have developed quite a few Muslim friends and acquaintances. People who are in levels of their devotion, but nonetheless, they identify themselves as Muslim. And we have had many conversations, some of them I've had multiple conversations with, Conversations in my office that were planned, sometimes conversations behind a building or on a street corner that weren't necessarily planned about our faith, about their faith. They'll ask me questions. I'll ask them questions. And we conversate together. The interesting thing that many Christians don't understand is that Muslims are often better understanders of Christianity then Christians are understanders of the Islamic religion. And because many Christians don't understand Islam, what they fail to miss is that on a moral level, Christians and Muslims are actually quite similar. There are a lot of moral values that Muslims hold that Christians hold to. However, there is an aspect of our benevolence and generosity that always seems to strike an unavoidable chord with every Muslim person I've ever had the privilege of having this conversation with, particularly those who are in proximity to our physical space because they often will see us. Many of these conversations have been birthed out of the generosity that comes out of our house. Christmas Palooza, where we serve thousands of kids, thousands of toys over the course of three days, being a blessing to people all over our city. Family Palooza, where we create a fun, free day for uh, up near a thousand people just to enjoy and have fun with their family. Our daily meals for kids, where we serve hundreds of kids free meals every single day in the summer, during the school year, to make sure food insecurity in our community goes down. Grocery drive-throughs like we do every single month where we serve hundreds of families, thousands of pounds of fresh free groceries. Because the thing that my Muslim friends always say to me whenever we talk about that is they say, that's the part I don't understand. They say it moves me. Because as a Muslim, they would say, we would absolutely help one of our own. If one of our own was in need, we would, we, would, we would help. We would provide. But they say, you serve us. And we do. We have Muslim families every day come and get meals from us. We have families who uh, don't believe in God at all. They're atheistic. They're agnostic. They are just simply numb to the realities of Jesus. We have Buddhists. Hindus, everywhere in between. And the fact that we would serve them blows their mind. Because they understand and would do good to those who are their kind. Do good to those who do good to them. They don't understand. And there's something in them. You can see the spirit of God working. There's something in them that when they see people be generous for no other reason than their God has been generous to them. Be generous because this is what we're called to do. Do good. That they can't deny and they can't avoid. 
I think of the call that John Wesley gives. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist tradition, had this rule of life that's been recorded in this way. He said to do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Can I tell you, friend, that's what misfits do. We should be people who do all the good we can, in all the ways we can, to all the people we can, in all the places we can, as long as we have breath in our lungs. This is what misfits do. They do good. He says you are to shut the mouths of people who don't know God by doing good. Can I tell you something, friend? Doing good, write this down. This is what we do together. Doing good is literally the calling on you and I. It's the calling on our church. It's the calling on the capital C church. Doing good is what we do together. You see, people may not believe like we believe, but they should not be able to deny the good that we do. You may not believe in our Jesus. You may not believe in salvation through him. But Peter would say, they should not be able to deny the good they see you do. They should not be able to deny, combat, or second guess the generosity that flows out of you because you are a misfit. So I took great offense with this lady this week. On Monday afternoon, evening, I, had, I was leaving our facility. Actually, I was supposed to head straight home and pick up my wife and my son, and we were going to a, um, a little, little party, little dinner event thing. But um, as I'm walking out of the building, I, I go over to my car, and we, got a few, we had a few cars parked in front of the building at the time, but I, I set my, my, my bag with my computer and stuff in it in my back seat like I do all the time. And as I close that door, I look up, and this car comes flying off a of summer, driving directly at me. Now, people be exiting off summer into our parking lot like they merging onto I-240 all the time. It scares a brother. But this little maroon Hyundai had itself pointed at me and I was like, oh baby Jesus, what is happening right now? And they kind of pull up towards me and don't really even make it all the way into any parking spot. They're just sort of diagonal. And they, they, they stop their car, they put it in park, and they hop out. And this um, older lady jumps out and she says, uh, you work here? I said, yes, ma'am, something like that. She said, oh. She looked up, she said, are you, are you the pastor at Believing Church? I said, yes, ma'am, I am. She said, so you must be the one who started this yellow house thing. I said, Yes, ma'am, I did. Now, you got to understand, when, when, when the Hyundai is flying at me, all my defenses are up. Because I'm like, I mean, I think I could take this Hyundai. I mean, these Hyundais ain't that big. Like, this was like a little older Hyundai. Like, I could probably take this Hyundai. But then she starts asking me if, you know, about the church, about Yellow House. And then, so I'm thinking, this conversation is about to be good. So my, my guard goes down, and I'm like, oh, yeah. That's me. And as soon as I identify myself as the one who has started Yellow House, she begins to lob unfounded, inaccurate accusations at me and us. She says, oh, Yellow House. She said, y'all bought a house on Owen Street. She said, and I have been informed that you are turning it into a halfway house. And she says, I have seen halfway houses in this neighborhood before because I've lived in this neighborhood since I was five years old. And I am, I, I am over 70 years old now. And I've seen halfway houses and they become nothing more than prostitution rings. This is just her going off on me. And she's like, she's like, we work way too hard and our community is way too dangerous. We don't want you here and we don't want your hat. We don't want your prostitution ring here. That's what she said to me. We don't want your prostitution ring here. And I'm just thinking, oh, this is, 
this is this is funny. Like, what is going on here? And and she starts going on and on and how there are neighbors who who are who are angry at this and all this kind of stuff and just heaping all these accusations that are not true. And she sort of gets done with her initial spiel because she is, I mean, she was on one. She was talking about, I'm going to call the police and have it shut down. And she said, the police know me by name. Now, here's the thing. If the police know you by name, that is never a good sign. <laughs> like, unless you are married to a police officer, it is never a good sign if the police know you by name. Because that either means you be in the jail way too much or, or you be calling way too much. Like, one of the two has to be true. She talked about how I spent 10 years as a neighborhood watch leader in this community. And as the former neighborhood watch leader, I can get hundreds of signatures and we can form a protest and we will go to City Hall and we will shut you down. I was like, all right, let me shut you down real quick. Because uh, what I tell people all the time is that I am a, I'm a pastor through and through. My heart is as a pastor. But uh, before I was a pastor, I was a Memphian. Which means you push me, you get pushed back. <laughs> you check me, you get checked back. <laughs> you come at me, I'm probably going to come back at you. And I'm just a little bit, a lot of bit, petty. And so, um, and so I just took all this in, and I'm, I'm, I'm essentially like live fact-checking her, because I know what's true, and clearly she does not know what's true. And I said, I said ma'am, I said, before you go to all of this um, effort in, in, in doing all this work, would you like to know what's actually true about our church and about Yellow House? And she looked at me like, what are you talking about? I said, ma'am, I, I just want to inform you. And I said, all this can be verified online because I said, by the way, where did you get your information from? She said, well, so, some people I know from when I used to do Neighborhood Watch called me. I said, okay, did you check on anything they told you? And she said, no, I know they're telling the truth. Well, I said, ma'am, I know they don't know what they're talking about because yes, we did buy a house. But no, it is not on Owen. So you got the street wrong, which means you got the address wrong. And we are not opening a halfway house. Not that there's anything wrong with a halfway house. I'm telling her, I said, I know people who live in halfway houses, as you would call them. I know people who are in recovery programs. And can I tell you, oftentimes they are doing great, great work. So maybe you've had a bad experience or two, but for you to throw every halfway house that you ever hear about under the bus as being some unredeemable, ungood thing for the neighborhood is a little bit prejudging on your part. But I said, even beyond that, it is not a halfway house. If you would go to yellowhousememphis.org, the very first words you would see in very large type is exactly what we are doing with the house, not on Owen, that we bought. We are providing quality, affordable housing for single moms. And so we are buying houses in the neighborhood to try to enable families to have stability and quality that they would not have otherwise, particularly for families being led by single moms. So I corrected some of her other things along the way, and we got into this long, like, me, 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 you know, and she started, you know, you know how people get when they all hot and bothered, like, she started talking about crime in our city, and, you know, she don't like this elected official, and she don't like this, and I'm just like, man, 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 man I'm, a, I'm a pastor <laughs> in believing church. Like, that's what I do. And we started, the, like, what are you, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? But I, 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 I. I finally had to stop the conversation because my wife called me and she's like, yo, we're going to be late if you don't get over here. And I was like, ma'am, I got to go. <laughs> so I just left. And uh, that's the way our conversation ended. But um, it bothered me. And it bothered me because people were saying wrong things. It bothered me because the church has to be known for the good that we do. There's too much church that's known for its selfishness. And I am not going to stand for people who like, like saying inaccurate things. Say accurate things that aren't good, but don't say inaccurate things. Be making up stuff. Because around here, the way we are and the way that Peter calls us to be here, to live as misfits, is that we don't just talk good, we be good. We don't just say good things. Sometimes as church people, we can talk a big talk and not deliver. But I was like, baby, you going to know who we are and know what we do. See, it's been my goal since the beginning to build a church that if it ever went away, our community would mourn. That's what drives me. I don't care about us becoming the biggest church anybody's ever seen. I ain't got no problem with being big. 
But there are big churches that if they went away, the community wouldn't care. People who go to the church would just find a new church. See, that's why we give groceries the way we give groceries. Because if we ever went away, there would be thousands of people in our community that would not know how to make it through a month with enough groceries. That's why we give meals to kids every single day. Because there are thousands of kids that know, listen, if nothing else, I'm going to get to eat at night because we go by to church every afternoon and get food from me. Tell me that doesn't plant a seed in the side of an eight-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old who begins to realize when nobody else came through, God's house came through. Let's build a church that if it ever went away, the community would wonder, how are we going to provide toys for our kids? Because for the last five years, every year we went to the church and God provided through that church. That's the reason we do classes like we do. We do classes to teach people how to buy homes. We do classes teaching people how to manage their money. You know why? Because we think God cares about every area of their life. And we can say it as much as we want. But until people see it, they'll never feel it. And if they never feel it, they'll never know it. Can I tell you, that's why I, for one, will never back down from challenging people to do good year-round. That's why if you come to our church for any length of time, you're going to hear me or somebody or all of us tell you you need to serve. You know why? Because the more of us that serve, the more serving is done. That you need to leverage your talent. You need to leverage your influence. You need to leverage your finances. You need a plan to give because the more money that comes into this house, the more ministry that can be done out of this house. So I have no problem challenging people to do the things God has called us to do. You know why? Because doing good is what we do together. And we will do more if all will do something. But doing good is not just what we do together. Today, as I close, I want to take this to you very personally. Because doing good is what you do personally. What do I mean? How you live matters. How you live when you walk out of a church service. How you live when you turn off church online. How you live when the podcast is done matters. Because attending church, watching a sermon, is not a cover-up for being a sorry neighbor. It's not a cover-up for it. Attending church is not a cover-up for mistreating people in your life. But many people think it is. Oh, I went to church so I could... No, no, no. Attending church is not a cover-up for being the gossip at your office. Attending church is not a cover-up for your lying. Attending church is not a cover-up for your racism. Attending church is not a cover-up for you to cop out of ever doing anything because you think you're too busy to help anybody. Attending church is not a cover-up for how you treat people at restaurants. Attending church is not a cover-up for how you talk to people and talk about people online. Attending church is not a cover-up for you having no work ethic in the name of God. No, 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 no. Doing good is what you do personally. And I believe it's time for us who call ourselves Christians, us who are the misfits, us who Jesus has changed our life, to stop leading with telling people you're a Christian and start leading with showing people you're a Christian. Can I tell you where a red flag goes up for me? Anytime a business approaches me and the first words out of their mouth, particularly if they're approaching our church for service or services, and they want to inform us that they're a Christian company. Or they hand me their business card and woven into their logo is a cross or a Jesus fish. Ain't nothing wrong with a cross. Ain't nothing wrong with a Jesus fish. The ichthus, if you will. But there is a problem when you use that as some cover-up for the fact that you charge too much or some reasoning behind why you don't do good work. There are people 
who call themselves Christian businesses who will talk to about sponsoring different opportunities that we have going on. That say they love the city, say they love Jesus. Then we give them an opportunity to be someone who invests in providing free toys for kids. And they can't do that, but they can go spend $10,000 providing lunch for other wealthy people at the country club for the Chamber of Commerce meeting, but they don't have any money in their budget to be able to help a church in a community bring change to kids that they probably serve too in some way. Miss me with that. Stop leading with telling people you're a Christian and start leading with showing people you're a Christian. Can I tell you this matters so much? Barna, the largest research firm in our country concerning spiritual matters, just released a new survey on what causes people with no faith to distrust Christianity. So why do people who have no faith in God not trust Christians? The number one reason, and it was almost 49% of all people who polled said it was this, the hypocrisy of so-called Christians. The primary reason people with no faith in God do not trust Christianity is the hypocrisy of so-called Christians. Now you may or, not believe, may or may not believe that's true, but you can't deny it's an issue. The real problem I have with this as an issue is this. It's what's most troubling to me. This is entirely preventable. Right? There are things about Christianity, things about our faith that are not preventable. If someone says they don't believe there is a God that they can't see, well, I can say and show and do all I can, but I can't, prove, I can't, I can't make a God that you can see so you can worship that. that no, 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 no. Like, like it is unpreventable. If you say, I don't believe Jesus ever lived. I don't believe Jesus was the savior of the world. I don't believe that my sin had to be paid for by a perfect sacrifice. I don't believe that. I don't want to have faith. Well, the writer in Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And that to come to him, you must first believe that he exists. And he rewards those who diligently seek him. Like there are some aspects of our faith that are not preventable. Like this is what it is. But I can prevent my own hypocrisy. Because all hypocrisy is, is a behavior that contradicts what one claims to believe. It's the fact that we say a thing, but we don't do that thing. We say we love, but we do anything but love. We say we're generous, but we're the stingiest people we know. We, we, we say we care, we say we'll serve, but we never show up when people need us to care or serve. Here's my admonishment to you today. Stop saying or start showing. Stop saying or start showing. You pick, but you need to pick. Because more and more people every day are becoming hostile toward God. Because they don't see the good in us personally. They get louder and louder and louder and hear me. They have the right to. But we have a challenge today. Shut them up by doing good. Shut them up by doing good. It is your job and mine, your responsibility and mine to shut them up. That's what Peter said, by doing good. The greatest apologetic in our world today is not something that we say, it is something that we do. When people see your good deeds, they will give praise to your Father in heaven. Silence these foolish arguments by doing good. I believe, friend, it's time for us to do good. And today, as I pray for you, here's what I believe is true for maybe all of us. Some of us need to repent of what we've done personally. Some of you, what's true about you is the personal example, the personal faith, the personal, that your faith stops as soon as service ends. 
And the people you live with, and the people on your street, and the people that you work with, and the people you go to class with, the people that, like, like, they don't see Christ in you because there is no good that comes out of you. You are just as hateful. You are just as intolerant. You are just as ungenerous and unkind and uncaring as anybody else. And you need to repent of that. Because the scriptures tell us to shut them up by doing good. But you know the good that needs to come out of you doesn't come out of you. And some of us, what we need to do is commit to what we'll do together. Some of you, the truth is that you're around what we do together, but you do not participate in what we do together. You don't serve, you don't care, you don't, you don't give, you don't, you don't involve yourself in building what God is building and doing what we do together. But can I tell you, shutting the mouths of those by doing good is not just something you do individually, it is something we do together. And some of you need to realize that today is time for you to jump on the team. It's time for you to find a place and start serving. It's time for you to start making a difference. It's time for you to be involved. It's time to commit yourself. It's time to set a plan and start giving. It is time to change, to start doing good. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that as it convicts us, it would change us. And as we change, it would not just be in our thinking, but it would be in the way that we live. Father, I pray you change us. and You help us to live as those who do good. We love you and we praise you. We give you all the honor, Jesus, in your name. Amen.